0: Hello, and welcome to the Infectious Disease Podcast from Clinical Care Options. I'm your host, Jennifer Blanchette. Today's episode is the first in a short series titled Steps to the Future, Present and Future of PrEP, featuring expert insights on recent and ongoing advances in HIV pre-exposure prophylaxis. During this episode, Dr. Daryl Tan from Toronto, Canada, discusses approved and guideline-recommended oral HIV PrEP regimens and provides key insights on determining PrEP candidacy, as well as important considerations for specific populations or clinical scenarios, including adolescence, pregnancy and breastfeeding, and transgender individuals. For more information about Dr. Tan and for a link to additional educational content from this program, including downloadable slides, please visit the show notes for this episode. Now let's get started and hear what Dr. Tan has to say about optimizing use of oral HIV PrEP.
1: Hello everybody and thanks so much for joining us for this learning uh, exercise on optimizing use of oral HIV PrEP. Uh, My name is Dr. Daryl Tan, I'm an associate professor and um, clinician scientist in Toronto, Canada in the Division of Infectious Diseases at the University of Toronto and at St. Michael's Hospital. So uh, what we'd like to start off with is just talking about how to select the most appropriate candidates for PrEP. So who are the people that are most likely to be able to benefit from this exciting HIV prevention option? And we divided it up according to the main potential modes of acquisition for HIV. Uh, So you can see that for gay, bisexual and other men who have sex with men or MSM on the left, As well as for heterosexual uh, women and men, uh, PrEP is something to consider if people have been sexually active, uh, but are not in a monogamous or closed relationship with somebody who has been recently tested and confirmed to be HIV negative. On the left, you can see that for MSM, it's recommended that PrEP be really seriously considered for folks who are having anal sex without a condom uh, in the last few months or or are anticipating that in the future, uh, or who have had Uh, certain bacterial sexually transmitted infections, uh, syphilis, gonorrhea, and chlamydia. Really the risk is greatest specifically with infectious syphilis and with rectal uh, gonorrhea or chlamydia, Uh, but all of those would be potential indications. And you can see that uh, similar criteria exist, as you can see in the middle, for heterosexual women and men. Again, uh, looking for infrequent condom use with uh, more than one partner uh, who might be at increased epidemiologic Risk for HIV or who are of unknown HIV status. In some cases, it may be in the setting of someone who's known to be HIV positive with unsuppressed viremia. Uh, and again, we're looking at those specific bacterial STIs that we know can increase the risk for HIV acquisition. In the setting of injection drug drug use, uh, we're really looking at individuals who uh, have a history of sharing uh, their works or sharing injection equipment. Uh, We also need to recognize that individuals may also be at risk for sexually acquired HIV in this setting as well. And across all of these categories, we're interested in individuals who are uh, adults or adolescents weighing over 35 kilograms and and who clearly do not have established HIV infection or acute HIV infection. This is an HIV prevention option uh, for individuals who are known to be negative. Now in upcoming 2021 CDC guidelines, there are gonna be some uh, small revisions here to really broaden the indications somewhat and and really emphasize that we wanna inform all sexually active adults and adolescents about PrEP as well as people who inject inject drugs uh, so that people really know that this is something that they could benefit from uh, regardless of their uh, specific types of sexual activity. So once you've identified that someone could benefit from PrEP, how do we go about actually selecting uh, a specific regimen. Well, uh, for all adults and adolescents at risk for HIV through sex or through injection drug use, uh, a standard traditional option would be the use of daily oral mtricetamine or FTC with tenofovir disoproxil fumarate or TDF, so FTC-TDF. And that's really based on a wealth of clinical trial data as shown in this next slide. Uh, there's a table here that summarizes some of the pivotal clinical trials Uh, looking at these uh, nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitors, TDF, plus or minus uh, FTC, and really demonstrating uh, that by by blocking the activity of HIV reverse transcriptase, they are associated with highly statistically significantly reduced risks of acquiring HIV. Uh, And that's true for all of these different populations. The evidence base was, was really built upon in a number of additional open label or extension and demonstration project studies, particularly in gay bi, and other men obsessed with men you can see them listed here again really demonstrating that in something closer to a real world setting you continue to see very high levels of effectiveness for these regimens now some folks when they look at these numbers they may say okay that's uh, very statistically significant but uh, the magnitude of decrease maybe isn't as high as as i thought it was or it's a little bit lower than i might have hoped for you can see uh, the numbers are going from 44 up to about Uh, you know, 75 or so percent in the column on the right here. And it's really important to understand that the reason that those numbers kind of don't look as impressive as uh, we typically think about or or speak about when when we're thinking about PrEP and its uh, excellent efficacy is that we know that the degree of adherence with study drug in some of these pivotal clinical trials was actually pretty suboptimal. Um, And it really comes down to an issue of adherence. Some of the uh, studies went on to look at the level of detectable drug in the uh, study populations and showed that you know, the rare situations where someone did acquire HIV was typically in the setting of low drug levels. And if you redid the analysis in the setting of folks who did have high drug levels, then the efficacy estimates go up. And that's really summarized nicely in this uh, summary plot, showing a very clear linear relationship across trials, uh, demonstrating that the more a study population or an individual adheres with PrEP, as with any medication it's going to have higher effectiveness. But there are other regimens that can also be used for PrEP that we should look, look at um, and uh, specifically in the setting of gay, bi, and other men sex with men uh, there is also the option of looking at what's called an on-demand FTC-TDF dosing option. And although this is uh, not uh, formally recommended at this time by the FDA, it's off-label in that setting, other guidelines, including those from the WHO, the ISUSA, and Canadian guidelines here in Canada where I work uh, do include the option of on-demand, also called event-driven and sometimes called 2 dosing, that we'll talk about next. So this regimen is really based on a pivotal uh, trial that was run by the French uh, INFS called Ypergay. It uh, took place in France and at some centres here in Canada where I work. Uh, specifically in men with sex with men who were at high risk for HIV infection. Now transgender women were eligible to join the trial but ultimately there were so few uh, in that trial that essentially it was a trial looking at this population of MSM. And in the uh, beige colored box on the upper right of this slide you can see uh, the way that it was recommended that participants take this on-demand regimen. Uh, Specifically, the idea was that if someone anticipated that they were going to have sex um, in in the near future, then they would take a loading dose, two pills, uh, about two to 24 hours before sex. So it does require that people can anticipate when they might have an exposure, followed by another tablet the day after, and then ultimately another tablet the day after that. And so that's the reason we also call this 2-1-1 dosing. I like to use that terminology because it helps patients remember this regimen that might otherwise be ever so slightly trickier to remember. Uh, In a situation where the person then went on to have another exposure in the next couple of days, then they essentially keep on taking those daily doses until two days have elapsed since the last time they were uh, exposed. So it could become 2-1-1-1-1 dosing in certain cases. And you can see that both in the uh, placebo controlled randomized phase of the trial in the bottom left, as well as in the open-label extension of this trial, uh, the risk reduction associated with this regimen was really excellent. 86 or 97% risk reduction compared to the placebo uh, arm in the randomized phase of the trial. Uh, And again, the rare cases in which people did acquire HIV, unfortunately, was really in the setting of suboptimal adherence. And although this regimen isn't super commonly used, I would say, at this time in North America, Uh, It is kind of gaining traction, certainly in the setting of COVID, it's becoming uh, more relevant for many people. And I should say that in the uh, European setting, uh, it is somewhat more popular and we've seen in some pivotal studies, such as the Amprep study in the Netherlands, that when folks are actually offered uh, on equal footing, both the daily and the on-demand options, there's actually a fair number of people who will choose either of them. And, and, And many people do choose to switch between these two options over time depending on their changing circumstances. And it really emphasizes to me the importance of really laying all the options on the table for folks, not making assumptions about what's gonna work or be easier or harder for an individual patient to use, uh, really allowing patients to, to choose for themselves and, and empowering people uh, with all the different options uh, that do exist. Before leaving this topic, I do wanna emphasize uh, that on-demand FTC-TDF PrEP should not be used for heterosexual uh, individuals or really trans men and women. Um, because of the lack of data at this time. It's also not recommended for folks with hepatitis B infection because uh, TDF FTC event- effectively also operates as hepatitis B treatment, and we don't want to be having people toggle on and off of that because of the significant risk of that leading to a hepatitis B flare. Now, next we'll talk about uh, a third uh, regimen that can also be considered for use as oral prep, and that's oral uh, FTC TAF or it's not your alafenamide as a daily regimen uh, specifically in again MSM or transgender women really it's recommended by the FDA for adults and adolescents who are at risk for HIV through sex uh, but not including uh, individuals whose sexual risk would be through receptive vaginal sex Uh, there are ongoing trials to look at that uh, setting but it's not recommended uh, at this time So the whole reason that TAF or tenofovir alafenamide with FTC is even thought to be a useful option for use as PrEP uh, and in in treatment, of course, is is based on this schematic that we're looking at now. It's important to understand that both TDF and TAF are actually prodrugs of tenofovir and uh, they're prodrugs of the the form that actively uh, works against the virus, the tenofovir diphosphate. And really, when we take uh, these pills, the goal is to achieve high levels of that tenofovir diphosphate right in the lymphocytes. What, what happens with TDF when we take it is that it does quickly become metabolized to tenofovir um, even in the plasma compartment. Uh, and in contrast, TAF uh, is able to be transported, transported right into the cells before that metabolism really takes hold to any significant degree. And as a result of that, uh, there's less of the circulating tenofovir in the plasma in the setting of TAF dosing, uh, and therefore less that can, you know, move around to other parts of the body where it could be uh, it, it, responsible for toxicities in the kidneys and the bones, etc. This pharmacologic feature also allows us to really get away with a, partic- uh, a significantly lower dosing of the product, 25 milligrams as opposed to 300, and that really uh, leads to a smaller pill size, which our patients really appreciate as well. So uh, based on this theory, this uh, product FTC-TAF was actually studied formally in a a well-conducted, large randomized control trial called DISCOVER in cisgender MSM as well as transgender women and demonstrated uh, pretty clearly to be non-inferior to the standard FTC-TDF for HIV prevention when used as daily PrEP. And uh, that's shown in the images uh, here. You can take a look that it was uh, clearly favoring um, the FTC-TAF compared to FTC-TDF, although that difference didn't really reach statistical significance. So giving us confidence that this uh, is an option that can be reliably used in this setting. And indeed, when we think about the safety of this regimen, uh, you know, both of them were, were well tolerated, discontinuations were very rare uh, in both arms related to AEs, but as would have been predicted based on the theory that we talked about earlier from a pharmacologic perspective, there were better bone and renal safety outcomes with the TAF compared to the TDF arms that were statistically uh, significant. And you can see that based on the number of different tubular proteins or tubular markers, as well as the creatinine markers, as well as the bone mineral densitometry that was done at the hip and bone. Really the only parameter that might have favored the FTC-TDF that we need to be cognizant of is with relation to weight changes. And that's summarized in the table here on the right. There were modest differences, that did reach statistical significance by week 96 between the two arms. A little bit uh, less weight gain in the FTC TDF arm, but the magnitude of this is, I would say, fairly modest, about 1.2 kilogram difference uh, after uh, two years. So, you know, two to three pounds, something to keep aware of and, and maybe speak to patients about. But typically, I have found that it's not a major factor that, uh, that results, results in this being a deal breaker uh, for, for many patients at all. So just to summarize the three different regimens that we've now spoken about, daily FTC-TDF is really approved, as you can see in the traffic light, color coding here, for really all populations that might find themselves at increased risk of HIV. The on-demand or 211 FTC-TDF regimen is is off-label, but it is guideline recommended for consideration in MSM. And you can see that the daily ftc TAF, which we spoke about last, is approved for MSM, transgender women, and by extrapolation, it should also be um, appropriate for using heterosexual men as well, although some of the guidelines haven't quite yet caught up uh, and incorporated that evidence formally into uh, their, their text. So with that in mind, how do we actually go about doing this? How do, what's our clinical approach to, to initiating a patient on PrEP once we've decided that they're appropriate for it and uh, we've uh, thought about the different regimens. Well, one thing that is true across the board is that it is really really vital to document HIV negative status uh, using an, an antibody test uh, in patients before they start PrEP and this should be done as close as possible typically within about a week of actually starting uh, the medication but uh, recognize of course that even our fourth generation antigen and antibody tests they're highly sensitive but they're not perfect right there's always still going to be that window period and for that reason it's also recommended that we screen people very carefully clinically uh, to eva- evaluate them for signs and symptoms of acute HIV seroconversion in the preceding you know, few weeks or months. Um, if there is any concern, you know, it would be advised to be cautious, you know, repeat uh, the serology test and really be certain that the person is HIV negative because if someone is using this medication in the context of being HIV positive without fully realizing it, of course that's a recipe for potential development of drug resistance, which is a major concern. Um, Of course, we should also think about contraindications. And and fortunately, there really aren't very many, right? It's it's really an issue of renal function requirements. You can see the creatinine clearance cutoffs that are recommended for TDF and TAF formulations, respectively, greater than 60 or greater than 30 mils per minute, uh, lower threshold in the setting of dialysis. We've spoken a little bit about hepatitis B, making sure uh, that you know the person's hepatitis B status. Uh, don't use the on-demand in uh, uh, an MSM uh, who is HPV positive. And if someone is uh, negative for this, uh, use it as an opportunity, uh, use PrEP overall as an opportunity to really engage a person in comprehensive sexual health care. So vaccinate them against hepatitis B, but also against other vaccine preventable infections, hepatitis A, human papillomavirus, test screen for for hepatitis c uh, for other bacterial stis and really link patients to appropriate care uh, for those conditions as they pick them next we'd like to move on and just review the approach to monitoring patients once they are initiated onto PrEP and that's summarized in this table here you can see that at PrEP initiation it's recommended uh, to do a thorough assessment including uh, HIV, uh, STIs, hepatitis serologies but also uh, think about pregnancy and those who have the capacity to become pregnant, uh, look at renal function, assess people's risks uh, and indications and and really counsel people carefully about the importance of adherence to this uh, regimen and Uh, as well integrate discussion around other strategies for risk reduction related to HIV and other uh, STDVIs. And then we typically engage with our patients every three months or so after that. At minimum, the requirement is to repeat the HIV assessment with a test and a clinical assessment, um, as well as to do an STI assessment uh, and and pregnancy testing as appropriate, engage those people in, in adherence counseling and behavioral risk reduction, And then the frequency with which you actually do STI testing uh, varies somewhat in different guidelines in the CDC guidelines, it's recommended at least uh, every six months, but there are data to say that it should be even more frequently in the setting of um, individuals who truly are um, uh, more sexually active. So uh, let's next talk about how we approach that counseling piece, we've kind of glossed over it so far, there are some uh, details that are important to mention to people as they're starting and stopping PrEP. Uh, based on some of the pharmacologic data that we have and uh, really the issue is, you know, how long does it take uh, before someone can consider themselves uh, protected? How long does it take, uh, as our patients say, for the prep to really kick in? And based on the best pharmacologic data, we we recommend that people, you know, stick with daily dosing for about a week or so. Um, That might be a little bit overly conservative. Uh, We don't know exactly what the optimal um, PK cutoff is uh, or correlative protection, but this is a reasonable recommendation that is widely made. We don't quite have enough data for FTC TAF yet. It may be better uh, than that, but that's typically what we recommend. And if someone's going to stop, remember that the protection, you know, quickly wanes within about a a week or a little more than that after discontinuation. There's different guidelines. that will have slightly different comments on exactly how to uh, counsel people around the stopping remember that when you're stopping uh, you should also uh, be cognizant of the person's hepatitis B status if they're positive at baseline there's a risk of flaring Uh, that's uncommon but just watch for that if you do have a hepatitis B positive individual and then talk about alternative prevention strategies including PEP uh, access as well if someone's choosing to stop their prep in the middle of course we do want to emphasize again the importance of daily adherence or regular adherence if someone's taking the on-demand regimen uh, that's really critical to efficacy as we talked about earlier. And there's a lot of different tools that I'm sure clinicians are quite familiar with in their experience counseling about adherence to, to medications in general that are really useful to speak about explicitly with our patients. Remember that many of these individuals might be coming to you in the setting of really not having a lot of other health issues in the past because they're seeking out a preventative option. Some other implementation considerations uh, that we really wanted to emphasize uh, are, are listed here. You know, Really remember that PrEP is this uh, amazing potential gateway to comprehensive sexual health care, as we've spoken about before. Think about those other vaccines. Make sure you engage your patients in, um, in, in prevention of other things besides just HIV. Um, think about their mental and behavioral uh, risks factors and uh, consider how their mental health might be tied to their um, STDDI risk and consider linking them to other uh, services for that, for family planning services as well. Now an elephant in the room when we speak about PrEP is the cost of the medication potentially depending on your healthcare setting, the cost of healthcare services in general. This is widely variable in different geographic settings and jurisdictions so we won't speak about it in detail at this time but it is important for anyone who's going to be thinking about potentially getting involved in prep delivery which is so important to really know what the, the cost options are that the coverage options are in your setting um, advocate for them to be uh, broadened because this is really a powerful intervention that we want to have more and more people benefit from in the future now just to wrap things up we're going to comment on a couple of uh, special uh, populations that we want to pay attention to uh, how does prep differ in the setting of adolescents or pregnancy uh, transgender individuals uh, really at this time there are limited information on the potential for long-term toxicities uh, specifically bone and renal with the tdf fdc option uh, of prep in adolescents um, but this is something we want to be uh, cognizant of because of course adolescents for example are still developing they're still building their bone at mass uh, at the same time this is a population, a setting in which adherence can often be a major challenge, both with medication and even just engagement in care. There are special disclosure issues that need to be thoughtful about that our adolescent medicine um, uh, providers are of course expert in. Um, but remember also that you know young individuals clearly have the most to gain from not acquiring uh, HIV in terms of just their age and the long number of years of life ahead of them. So uh, it's not a population that we should at all be ignoring. It's really important that we really focus and develop more um, data experience uh, with the use of PrEP in this uh, important population, which uh, does have a uh, rising rates of HIV acquisition. In terms of pregnancy, this is a setting where patients do often ask a lot of questions of us, That we know, of course, that pregnancy itself is associated with an increased risk of HIV acquisition itself. Now, unfortunately, there are, are still just a modest uh, amount of data on the safety and efficacy of PrEP in the context of pregnancy uh, or breastfeeding. Um, but we can extrapolate to a, a decent extent from the, the extensive experience with the use of FDCTDF uh, in, in HIV-positive uh, individuals, including pregnant women. We know that there is really no evidence from the international Pregnancy Registry suggesting any link between FDCTDF and teratogenicity. so that gives us uh, more comfort with its use. It's important, of course, that providers discuss the potential uh, risks and benefits of PrEP use in pregnancy in order to enable women to make an informed decision for themselves and and really individualize uh, that decision because of uh, the the uniqueness of that uh, setting and the importance of uh, preventing HIV in that setting as well. Finally, we have spoken somewhat already about indications for PrEP and regimens for PrEP that would be appropriate for use in uh, transgender persons. Remember that uh the burden of HIV is uh, disproportionately higher here and that's an unjust reflection of a lot of discrimination in our society. Uh, so we really need to be attentive to that as clinicians and try to counteract uh, those forces. We know that PrEP is effective in transgender women with good adherence based on prior clinical trials. Um, and we need to incorporate a careful clinical history taking into our uh, PrEP assessments, including um, types of sex, uh, use of gender affirming hormones, gender affirming surgeries, potentially use prep as a an option uh, again to link people into more appropriate forms of care if that's what they're seeking. Uh, there are some comments here as well at the bottom uh, regarding uh, just considerations about the ways in which gender affirming hormones can be relevant to consider. Remember that testosterone use can elevate serum creatinine, so in setting the trans men. Think about how um, you're, you're calculating someone's creatinine clearance use male equations uh, in the setting of testosterone use. In the setting of transgender women who are using feminizing hormones, it is really important to note that there have been careful studies uh, showing that plasma testosterone concentrations are modestly lower, 13% lower, um, versus PrEP without the use of hormones. Now, the clinical relevance of this does remain a little uncertain, uh, I would say, Uh, And in general, we think that the levels do still uh, remain in the range that would confer protection, Um, but it does give us a little bit of pause and important to to name that fact because this is an important question that many of our trans patients uh, ask us and unfortunately there are uh, data that have uh, been coming out looking at this exact issue. The converse is not true. So reassuringly, we can tell our patients that PrEP co-administration does not seem to affect levels of feminizing hormones. So we'll wrap up with just some key take home points. I think we've been emphasizing throughout this presentation that PrEP is really effective, uh, it's really safe, uh, it's an excellent HIV prevention option that really clinicians have a key role to to play in expanding uh, access uh, to this and uptake of it. At this time, daily oral FTC-TDF is the only FDA approved medication for folks who would be at risk of HIV from receptive vaginal sex or people Uh, who inject drugs. Uh, Fortunately for gay, bisexual, and other men sex with men, there's really uh, a wider menu of options. The on-demand 211 FTC-TDF dosing would be an option, as well as the daily oral FTC-TAF option that we spoke about earlier too. And really, as we continue to expand the number and variety of PrEP regimens um, available to different groups of people, it's really hoped that we'll be able to appeal to diverse populations, I uh, really let people know about the, the diversity of options available to them so that they can make the best choice for their own health. And finally just to re-emphasize that prep is just an amazing opportunity not only to prevent HIV, which is so important, but to really engage people in comprehensive care, uh, including but not limited to their sexual health, their mental health and other aspects of their well-being. So thanks so much for your attention. Uh, it's been a pleasure to uh, to chat with you today.
0: Thank you very much for sharing those insights, Dr. Tan. And thanks to our listeners for joining in. As a reminder to view the full educational program, Steps to the Future, Present and Future of PrEP on the CCO website, click on the link in the show notes. Please be sure to check back regularly for more episodes on important infectious disease topics. Thanks.